Chapter Three of The Caves of Fear by John Blaine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Matt Perard. Chapter Three Heavy Water. Hartson Brandt walked swiftly to the telephone and picked it up. What's the matter, Dad? Rick asked quickly. The scientist had a strange look on his face. Get me the telegraph office, Hartson Brandt said. He put his hand over the mouthpiece. I'll tell you in a moment. I want to get a wire off immediately. He spoke into the phone again. Western Union, this is Spindrift, Brandt speaking. I want to send a straight telegram, yes, to Stephen Ames. Rick gasped. Steve Ames was the young intelligence offer of JANIC, the secret Army-Navy group charged with protecting the security of American government secrets. The spindrift group of scientists had worked with Steve in solving the whispering box mystery. Scotty's fingers bit into Rick's arm. Hartson Brandt gave the address. Here's the message. Have reconsidered your request basis of new information just received here. Urge you come or phone at once. That's it. Sign it, Brandt, Spendrift. Yes, charged to this number. He waited until the telegraph office had read back the message, then hung up and turned to the waiting group. Three days ago, I had a phone call from Steve Ames. He asked if I could undertake a special job for the government that would require me to go overseas at once for an indefinite time. I was forced to decline because obviously I can't leave now with these staff changes about to take place. The scientist knocked the ashes out of his pipe, his face thoughtful. Steve wouldn't take no for an answer. He insisted that the job was of the utmost importance, and he added that it concerned an old college chum of mine. He paused. His name is Carl Bradley. Rick's eyes met Scotty's. He said it was an urgent job, but that he would give me a few days to think it over, to see if I couldn't rearrange my affairs in some way. I assured him it was no use, that I couldn't possibly leave, but he said to take until Saturday to consider it. That's tomorrow. Rick whistled. Some timing. It's a lot more than mere coincidence, Hartson Brandt said, but I don't know any more about it than what I've told you. Who is Carl Bradley? Vice asked. I'm surprised you haven't heard of him, Julius. He has a considerable reputation as an ethnologist. He and Paul Warren and I were in school together. We lost track of him for a while. Then he wrote from China. He had spent several years inland, living with the Chinese, as one of them. He produced some immensely valuable studies. Those, and his rather remarkable ability to speak and act like a Chinese, earned him the nickname of Chinese Bradley. He had lived most of his life since school in one part of Asia or another, but I'm sure I can't guess what his connection is with this special job of Steve's, or how he happened to become Chada's boss. Or... Why he's missing, Barbie added. The cable had created a mystery that demanded a solution, but no amount of discussion answered the questions it raised. Finally, Mrs. Brandt 
broke up the debate by pointedly remarking on the lateness of the hour. Reluctantly, the family started for bed. As Rick undressed, he continued the discussion through the door connecting his room with Scotty's. Chada's pretty sure we'll hurry to Hong Kong. Is he wrong? Scotty demanded. I don't know, Rick said. It depends on a lot of things. We can't go unless we get jobs, and Steve evidently didn't say anything to Dad about the rest of the staff, including us. Dad hasn't even said he'll go, Scotty reminded. Doesn't saying he has reconsidered mean that he'll go? Could be. Or maybe it just means he's willing to talk some more about it. We should have pinned him down. We will, Rick said, in the morning. He lay awake for long hours, staring into the darkness and trying to piece together Chada's references to a golden mouse, a Chinese with a glass eye, and a long shadow. It was no use. But there was no mistaking the urgency of his friend's plea. Where was Chada now? At a guess, somewhere between Singapore and Hong Kong. But whether by land or sea or air, Rick couldn't imagine. Nor could he even venture a wild guess at what kind of danger Chada faced. After a long time, he fell asleep, but it was fitful sleep, broken by frequent awakenings. In the morning, the discussion resumed over breakfast, bringing forth wild speculations from Barbie. Rick had to grin at her flights of fancy. One thing seems to be sure, Scotty offered. Chada was in a big hurry. What makes you think so? Mrs. Brandt asked. Barbie, please stop feeding Dismal at the table. Dismal turned beseeching eyes to Rick in a plea for moral support, but his young master was listening to Scotty. The words he used, like putting together an atomic symbol and Russian money to make troubles, and using ombra instead of shadow, I'm sure in a big book like The World Almanac, Troubles and shadows are mentioned somewhere, but he didn't have time to search. He took the first possibilities that came along. Rick nodded approval. That figures, but why didn't he have time? Scotty shrugged. Your guess is as good as mine. Maybe better. Julius Weiss, who had tired of the discussion and started to the lab, ran back into the house. There's a plane heading this way, he announced. I'm sure it's coming here, because it's down pretty low. The conversation ended abruptly. Rick and Scotty were first out on the lawn. The engine noise of the plane was loud. Rick saw it first, a sleek four-place cabin job, circling wide out over the water, losing altitude. In a few moments, it banked sharply behind the lab building, straightened out, and cut the gun. Rick was running toward the end of the grass strip even before the plane settled smoothly to the ground. Steve Ames, he said to himself. I'll bet it is. The JANIG officer had wasted no time. Sure enough, Steve was the first out of the plane. Rick saw that he was the only passenger. The pilot got out then, and Rick recognized him as one of the JANIG operatives who had chased the whispering box gang across Washington. Steve and Rick shook hands, grinning at each other. Then Rick 
greeted Mike, the pilot. Didn't think we'd be needing Spindrift again so soon, Steve said. He walked to meet the others and shook hands all around. Let's get busy, he said to Hartsenbrand. Rick, Scotty, and Barbie followed the two into the library. Mrs. Brandt took the pilot into the dining room for coffee, while Professor Weiss excused himself and went on to the laboratory. His apparent lack of interest would have amazed anyone who didn't know him, but Rick knew that when Julius Weiss was wrapped up in one of his theoretical math problems, nothing else on earth could find room in his mind. Steve looked at the scientist. What caused you to consider this? Hartson Brandt handed him the translation of Chata's cable, then the original. We broke the code last night. It was a book code, using the World Almanac. Chata knew we'd be able to puzzle it out. Steve scanned the number groups briefly. Clever, he commented. He read through the clear copy twice, and his jaw tightened. This explains something that has puzzled me. A good thing, Rick said because all we got was the puzzlement, no explanations. Steve tapped the cable thoughtfully. I hate to ask you to tackle this job, but you must have some ideas about it, or you wouldn't have sent that wire. Hartson Brandt nodded. I explained my situation to you on the phone when you called a few days ago. The situation hasn't changed, but I must admit this cable from Chada puts a new light on the matter. That boy is a member of the family. Then you'll go? I don't want to, quite frankly. I will if there is no alternative. I lost a lot of sleep last night making that decision. But first, I want to propose that some member of my staff go in my stead. Steve walked to the desk and perched on its edge. Which one? You know them all. You also know their specialties. Which of them would fit your requirements best? Zircon. He's a nuclear physicist. Rick held his breath. Steve was continuing. Chada urges Rick and Scotty to get jobs, too. I hadn't considered that, but it's not a bad idea. Rick closed his eyes and let out his breath in a sigh of relief. Scotty nudged him. Hartson Brandt asked, Then you will consider Zircon as my substitute always on condition that he will go, of course. Steve nodded. I prefer you, but I'll take Zircon, if I can make a condition of my own, and that is that you'll fly to the Far East on a moment's notice if he and the boys can't handle it. Rick looked at his father anxiously. Hartson Brandt had not given his permission for them to make a trip, but evidently it was all right. The scientist nodded. I'll agree to that. He went to the telephone and picked up the instrument. Operator, I want to place a long-distance call. Steve winked at the boys. Then, as Hartson Brandt placed the call to Zircon in New Haven, Connecticut, the Janik man said, Going to be a couple of tourists at government expense, huh? Pretty soft. Maybe, Rick said, grinning. That cable doesn't sound like anything soft. Steve got serious. You two proved yourselves in Washington, so far as I'm concerned. 
you can make yourselves useful, and you'll provide a good cover for Zircon. What kind of cover? Barbie asked. Steve smiled at her. Women can't keep secrets, I'm told. I can, Barbie retorted swiftly. Steve held up his hand for silence. Hartson Brandt had Zircon on the line. The scientist outlined Steve's proposal in a few words and gave Zircon the contents of Chada's cable. Then he listened to Zircon while Rick fidgeted anxiously. Finally, Hartson Brandt said, All right, Hobart, tell your people up there that I'll take your lectures. We'll see you later today. He hung up and nodded at Steve. Hobart had lectures scheduled for next week, but I can take them for him. You'll be down this afternoon, and, he says, you'll be ready to leave in the morning if necessary. Good, Steve nodded at Barbie. Even if you can't go on the trip, you can make yourself useful. Want to place a call to Washington for me? Yes, Barbie said eagerly. Where to? Steve gave her the number. Then, while she was placing the call, he said, Now, I'll tell you what I know. Rick's heart beat faster. Now he would learn what was behind Chata's cable. The day before I phoned here, Steve began, my office received a message from Carl Bradley. It was a top-secret message sent to us via the American Consulate General's channels from Singapore. I'd better explain first that Carl is a JANIC man. His knowledge of that part of the world has made him invaluable, and he works for us secretly while doing his routine work as an ethnologist. That is top-secret information that must never be repeated outside this room. You can depend on us, Hartson Brandt assured him. I know it. To go on, his job is gathering information about persons who show too much interest in operations within our embassies and consulates. However, the cable we got from him wasn't quite in that line. Steve paused to see how Barbie was getting along. She was trying to listen to him and the operator at the same time. This cable, Steve continued, said he had accidentally made a discovery of something potentially dangerous to America. He asked for a competent nuclear physicist, and he named you, Hartson, to be sent to Singapore at once to check on his finding and to locate, if possible, the source of the stuff he had discovered. We haven't heard from him since. From Chada's cable, it's evident something has happened to him. And on the basis of the cable, I think we'll send Zircon and you boys to Hong Kong first. Scotty put into words the question that was in Rick's mind. What was it that he discovered? Steve's lips tightened. Then he said, Heavy water. End of chapter 3